Well, you know, we try a lot of things uh, in our life to be happy, don't we? In fact, this week, uh, Jerry and I read an article, it was published uh, just this week. It was entitled, Goat Yoga Now Has a 900-Person Waiting List. Yeah, that's right. Just in case you uh, wondered, it has a waiting list. A 900-person waiting list. Like, I wouldn't think there would be 900 whack jobs in the whole country, but there's 900 people that are waiting to do goat yoga. Now, maybe you're like me and you've never heard of goat yoga. Well, the owner of the article says of No Regrets Farm says that people love it. And get this, get this. She's actually quit her job to do it full time. Only in America. Only in America. She said it's been difficult. Uh, because six insurance, company have turned, insurance companies have turned down uh, the possibility of her getting liability coverage. I can't imagine why, right? But she says, I'm committed to goat yoga. What is goat yoga? She says, it's more than just a yoga class. It may even sound silly, you think. But it's helping people, she says, in extraordinary ways. It's interesting to me that in America, we have a habit of overusing words. Have you noticed that? In fact, my favorite is, probably yours too, awesome, right? You know, my son, Justin, our youngest son, Diana would make him a grilled cheese when he was like four, and he would go, this grilled cheese is awesome. This is about the most awesome grilled cheese I've ever had in my life. And we're going, dude, it's two pieces of bread with cheese in between it, right? Even dad could make that, right? It's not, but she says goat yoga is helping people in extraordinary ways. And she says it's making people smile. It's really about disconnecting with the day-to-day stress, sickness, or depression. And get this, she says, focusing on positive, happy vibes. That's goat yoga. She goes on to say in this article, people are desperate for something pure and peaceful. I've been in Kenya, and in Kenya, the goats are like all over the place, right? And there's a lot of words that come to mind when I'm in Kenya and I see goats. Pure and peaceful aren't aren't part of that. She says it's really hard to be in pain and sad when there's baby goats jumping around you. She adds, it's just like you're letting go. And, And get this, in case some of you right now are wondering or you're on your smartphones going, where can I sign up for that? She says you can get on the waiting list by signing up at her website, www.goatyoga.net. So if you want to do that and you want to be happy, that is one of the ways in which you can be happy in this new year. But we begin the quest for happiness, do we not, at a very early age? Even for our kids, before they realize what happiness really is all about, we try to do things to make them happy. In fact, our country was founded to some degree on the pursuit of what? Of happiness. In our Declaration of Independence, it says that we have the right to life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. It's interesting, isn't it, that life is guaranteed if you're in America. We're not going to shoot you indiscriminately. If you're in America, we're going to do everything we can to guarantee you that you're going to have liberty. But happiness, that's up to you. You're welcome to pursue it. You may or may not find it, but you're welcome to pursue it. And so we do. And for more than 240 years now in this country, we have been on this idea of pursuing happiness. 
We look for it in many different ways in our culture. There's endless possibilities to try and make us happy. The 17th century uh, Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal said this, we tend to be miserable. And we don't like being miserable, so we create diversions. We think about other things or pursue things to take our minds off of our misery. To me, that sounds like a lot of people that I interact with. In fact, if I'm really honest this morning, and if you are as well, that sounds like your life sometimes, where you're miserable, you're not happy, and so you create diversions. We think or pursue other things to take our minds off how miserable we really are. Think about the things that we do. At the beginning of every year, uh, we can read articles that tell us, here's 10 or 20 ways to happiness in 2017. The sad thing is it usually has something to do with losing weight, right? You'll, you'll be happy if you just drop uh, five pounds or 10 pounds, or I could drop five pounds and I wouldn't notice it. 10, 15, 20, 30, you'll be happier. If you exercise, if you get out of debt, if you pursue a new relationship or begin a new hobby, many of us look for happiness by uh, self-medicating. Uh, drugs are prevalent in our culture. Not only drugs, but alcohol, nicotine, food. We do things to self-medicate. We look for happiness in stuff. The media screams at us, if you have a minivan, if you'll get rid of that minivan and you'll get this car, you'll be happy. The wind will be flying through your hair, if you have hair. It'll be flying through your hair, and you'll be happy if you just get this car. How about electronics? And you remember when we thought like a 20-inch screen, that was huge, right? And now you got to have an 80. You know, you get an 80, and then you'll be happy. Then you'll really be able to watch the game. You got this house, but if you had this house, or if you had that vacation house, then you'd really be happy. If you had those clothes... If you had that shirt with that little whale on it, that would make you happy. Because every time you looked down and you saw that little whale, that just put a little bit of smile on your face. When I was in high school, it was an alligator. Anybody else with me? I mean, if I had, see, if I had the IZOD shirt and the Levi's 501s and I had the Converse, which are coming back now, the kids are wearing those these days, then I would be happy. I thought about this also. We look for happiness in places, don't we? We look for happiness in places, whether it's a vacation spot or a new city to live in. I've been amazed over the 21 years that we have lived in Cary how many people have moved here. And I say to them, oh, did your job move you here? No, we came with no job. We wanted to be happier. We wanted a different lifestyle. And so we came to Cary. We try to find happiness in relationships, whether it's uh, pursuing uh, finding a wife or a husband or even for some of us having children. We assume that another person will bring a sense of happiness or fulfillment in our lives. Hey, when you live in a culture and you're watching a football game and there's an ad that comes on for farmersonly.com, you know people are seeking happiness in relationships. Whoever knew that if you just found a farmer, you'd be happy. And so we're going to create a whole website that says, if you're looking for a farmer, farmersonly.com. Right? Now, nothing against farmers. I mean, I'm, I'm from the state of Nebraska, right? We're the breadbasket to the world. But, but really, farmersonly.com. And certainly, here's the truth of the matter, because we're in church today. 
Many people look for happiness in religion, don't we? Our world is full of religious systems that, that promise us if you'll, if you'll do these things, if you'll follow our rules, if you'll give this money, if you'll pledge to this, if you'll be part of this, that, that you'll uh, be happy and you'll be prosperous. One person I read this week said it this way, I loved this. He said, if God's plan for you is that you would prosper and be rich and would have more than enough money to pay your bills, then what does that say about Jesus? He was born into a poor family, worked a common job for 30 years, spent three years in ministry, was broke, homeless, and sometimes hungry. Does that sound like religion alone is the answer to joy in your life? And we would say, hopefully if you're here this morning and you've heard the, the, the gospel message, you would say there's a big difference between the gospel and religion. Simply put, put, we live in a country which from the beginning was founded on this social experiment called the pursuit of happiness. And really, you know, the verdict is in, I, I believe, in our culture today in 2017, and that is that all of those things that we have tried, that we have worked on to pursue happiness, to find satisfaction, to find fulfillment in life, the verdict's in, and it's not working real well, is it? Some of us could testify to that this morning. It is true that we have the, the right to pursue happiness in America, but let me submit to you uh, this, that the reality is that happiness is only guaranteed to followers of Jesus who come to understand a biblical understanding of happiness and joy and fulfillment. And that's why we go to the Scripture. That is why culture and religion alone always disappoint. But when we have a proper understanding of biblical truth, we then have the roadmap to the pursuit of happiness. And so we come to our study, as Jerry said, that we'll be in for the next 10 to 12 weeks in the book of Philippians. And if you have your Bibles or you have an app on your smartphone, I'd love for you to go to the book of Philippians. And we're just going to cover five verses this morning. And let me give you a fair warning, okay? Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson today. And I know some of you, you'll eat that up, you'll love that, and you'll go, man, I never knew that. That's awesome to see how it fits together. Some of you will go, get on with the application, tell me the so what. All right, we'll get to that at the end. But we're going to take an in-depth study of the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 to 5, all right? So if you have uh, your Bible or your phone on there, uh, let's start with uh, chapter 1, verse 1, word 1, all right? And let's just read Paul and let's stop, all right, for about 10 minutes. And you say, man, there's 104 verses. If we set an average of six words, man, this is going to take forever to get through this book. I promise you, we will speed up dramatically once we get past the word Paul, all right? But it's very important to me. Uh, for some of you especially who are new to the faith, you, you've recently come to Jesus, uh, we want you to understand the context of Scripture, right? If we just jump in and we start teaching and you don't understand context, you don't understand why the letter uh, was written, there are a lot of things that fly right on past you. And so I'm going to give you just a little bit of a history lesson, all right? If you know this stuff, just go, dude, I'm smart, all right? If you don't, you don't have to tell anybody around you, you just go, now I know, all right? So we start with Paul. Who was Paul? Paul, before he came to faith in Jesus, had a different name. His name was Saul. And Saul, if you read in Acts chapter 9, you know he was a persecutor of Christians. Literally, this guy made his living 
by going to different places and persecuting, literally even to the point of death, those that were followers of Jesus. And one day he's on his, on his way to uh, a city called Damascus. And it's there that we read in Acts chapter 9 that a bright light from heaven shone down upon him. In fact, it blinded him. And when it blinded him, there was a voice from heaven. In fact, the text says it was Jesus himself who said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I'd love to stop here and just park for a minute, and I'd love to just preach now right, right there. And just tell you this, that in a world that is becoming more and more hostile to those of us that are biblically-centered Christians, don't make a mistake that when they persecute you, which I still say we've yet really to understand what persecution really is in America, all right, let's, let's get real, all right, you didn't have to travel very far before you see that we still don't have it so bad here. But when you do feel persecuted, whether that's in your neighborhood, whether that's in your school, whether that's at your job, you remember that Jesus said here, why are you persecuting who? Me. When they persecute us, they persecute the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus confronts him. He's confronted with the gospel that this really is Jesus, that he really is the Savior of the world. And he comes into a genuine relationship with Jesus. And I think it's fair to say that his life is never the same. We've said this to you many times over the last several months as we talked about discipleship last fall. That if you've really come into a saving relationship with Jesus, everything changes. And you got to understand, this was the story of the early church. You can imagine as the Apostle Paul then made his way to Jerusalem. And they're going, there's that guy. What's he doing in our church? Everyone, isn't he the one? You know, watch out. And he goes, no, no, I'm one of you now. It was the story in the early church. He's now passionate about the gospel. In fact, persecution has been replaced with passion and participation in the mission of the gospel. His life was radically changed, was radically transformed, and Paul and a group of other people went around talking to people about Jesus and planting churches. Now in Acts chapter 15, if you want to flip over to Acts chapter 15, because this is where we first see his relationship beginning uh, with uh, the people in Philippi. In Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have returned from the famous Council of Jerusalem. Uh, there were councils that met, not just in the early church, but uh, for centuries, councils that would meet, and they would um, uh, argue and talk about and discuss different doctrinal positions. And at this particular council, this is really important to people like you and me, at this particular council, the conclusion was reached that Gentile believers don't have to be circumcised or comply with Jewish customs in order to be followers of Jesus, in order to come into a saving relationship with Jesus. Now, some of you, I get it, you stayed up a little bit too late last night, and you don't understand the significance of that, but this was a very, very important moment in the history of the church. For them to make this decision and understand that a relationship with Jesus wasn't about circumcision. It wasn't about following all these dietary laws and doing all of these customs. That the Gentiles could be followers of Jesus, could have a saving relationship with Jesus without all of those things. And this was a huge, huge thing. And as a result, the opportunity for Gentiles to be confronted with the truth of the gospel just spread like wildfire. At the end of Acts chapter 15, we read that Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement between uh, themselves. And again, we'd like to stop there and we'd like to talk a little bit more about that. But at some point in the future, we're going to go through the book of Acts and we'll do that. 
But as a result of their disagreement, they separated. They decided to go their different ways. Paul took a man named Silas with him, and they began to retrace the steps of his first missionary journey to encourage the churches and to check up on them and to see how they were doing. There's a young man that we meet at this particular moment. His name is Timothy. And Timothy, Paul will later become incredibly close with. In fact, uh, Scripture tells us that he was uh, a spiritual father, Paul was, uh, to Timothy. Paul would become his mentor, his discipler, and Timothy began to travel around with him. And in Acts chapter 15 and then in 16, we read that as they traveled west, they attempt to go south to Ephesus. And the text says, but the Holy Spirit did not allow that. I got to thinking this week, have you ever had those situations where you're so in tune with what God's doing in your life, you're, you're allowing the Spirit to guide you, that you're planning to do something else and the Spirit of God just won't let you do that? I was reading this week and I thought, I'm going to start checking myself in that area. Do I ever get to the point where the Spirit of God goes, no, 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 not there. Like literally, they're driving south toward Ephesus. Ephesus is a really uh, cool city. I've been there. The ruins of the city of Ephesus are unbelievable. You know, so they're kind of steering the car this way, and it's like the Holy Spirit goes, no, 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 the other way, and they're going, I can't control it. We must be going to have to go north. So they go north toward uh, Bithynia, the, the text says. But even when they try to go north, again, the text says, the Spirit of God will not allow it. And so they go, okay, well, we can't go south, and we can't go north, and we came from the east, I think we'll try to go west. And so they go west, and they're effectively funneled in uh, west to Troas, and it's at the mouth of the Dardanelles Straits. Now, if you've been in that part of the world, uh, you know that there's uh, Turkey over here, and then Greece uh, is over here. So you have the east, and then you have Europe over here. They're right at that Dardanelle uh, Strait. That's the gateway to Europe. And that's where Dr. Luke joins them. And it's there at the Dardanelle Straits that Paul... Uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, um, in a dream at night, he's confronted with a vision of a man from Macedonia. Um, and this man that Paul sees in the vision is urging him to, literally the text says, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so when Paul sees the vision, immediately he wakes up the next morning and he goes, guys, I think we're supposed to go to Macedonia. And so they go over to Macedonia and in an instant, the gospel takes root on the European continent. That's about the time where you go, woohoo! That's awesome. Because if it weren't for that, up until this point, there's no gospel testimony over there. Paul's sleeping at night, has a vision, and all of a sudden they end up in Macedonia. And the gospel flag is unfurled in, the, in that empire that day. Now, Philippi wasn't a big city. When they got there, it was about 10,000 people at the most. It rests on a narrow shoulder of land. There's an Acropolis, a high city. And then there's the Via Ignatia, which is the, um, the highway between Rome and uh, her eastern empire. Philippi is right there. It's a fairly small city, fairly tight city. Philippi had been founded by the Greeks in the 4th century by Philip of Macedonia. And get this, when he discovered it, he named it after himself. Right? And I get if you ever find a city that nobody's ever found, you should name it after yourself too. But in, the, in 42 BC, it becomes a Roman colony because it's the place, get this, I found this out this week, where Mark Anthony and Octavian, or Augustus, uh, fought the forces of Brutus and Cassius, 
which if you know your history, you know that those were the assassins of Julius Caesar. And so at this point, Philippi becomes a a Roman colony, and as a result of that, it's governed by Roman law. It's made up of Roman expatriates. Uh, Latin becomes the official language, and uh, the leadership and the uh, aristocracy of Philippi, they're all uh, Roman, they speak Latin. But this naturally creates, because it's a Greek area, it creates a Greek underclass, Greek-speaking people, and they make up the commoners. They're those people that are the tradesmen. They're the merchants. They're the construction workers. And it's to those people that Paul goes to and he initially comes. Now, Paul's custom usually when he enters into a city, we see this in Acts chapter 14, is immediately he goes to a synagogue. He, he assumes that if he goes to a synagogue that there'll be people there that are at least religious And he'll tell them that there's another chapter, that there's something else, that Messiah that you've heard about, he's here, he's Jesus. And so he typically goes to the synagogue, but in this particular place, uh, they didn't meet the requirements for a Jewish synagogue. There weren't at least uh, 10 uh, men in that city, so they didn't have a quorum, so they didn't have a synagogue. After a few days, Paul finds some women uh, that are uh, entering into uh, chapter 16, verse 13 of Acts says, entering into a, a place of prayer. They're literally by the banks of a river just outside of the walls of Philippi. And Luke tells us it's there that, uh, that Paul meets a woman by the name of Lydia. And if you know your Bible, you know that Lydia was a seller of what? Purple. She was a seller of purple cloth. That's what she did. In fact, if you were to study her and her life, Um, Most Bible scholars believe she was probably fairly wealthy. Uh, In fact, she was probably, she and her family were the ones who subsidized a lot of the early ministry uh, there at Philippi. Paul shares Jesus with her. She comes to faith. The text says not only does she come to faith, but all of her family comes to faith as well. And Paul baptizes her right there in that little river. Spiritual opposition, obviously, as happens so many times in our lives and in our ministry, came right away. And it was in the form of a girl who the text says, verse 16, had a spirit of divination. In other words, she had a demon that was uh, uh, living inside of her. She was under demonic control and she would run around the city saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she was, in effect, really discrediting uh, their ministry and their message. And so Paul does what Paul does as an apostle. He exercised the demon out of her, and he found himself in deep trouble because he had taken away from those that controlled her their source of income. And Paul and Silas were seized, and many of you know the rest of the story. They were, they were placed in a small jail cell. I've been to that place there in Philippi. Just a very small cell, and they were chained together. They were identified as, as Jews And they were beaten and they were thrown in prison. And you remember that as they were there, as they were beaten, as they were bloody, you remember what the text says, verse 25 of chapter 16, what they did while they were in prison. They sang hymns. And then there's a great earthquake that happens. You remember when the earthquake happens, their shackles fall off of them and and other prisoners that are there. And the jailer, assuming that all the prisoners were going to escape, was ready to kill himself. And instead, Paul says, don't do that. We're still here. And so Paul has an opportunity to tell the jailer about uh, Jesus. And the text says, verses 30 and 31, uh, that he asked, what do I need to do to be saved? And they come to know Jesus, not only the jailer, but his whole household. And there's another round of baptisms that happen. When magistrates learned that Paul and Silas were indeed Roman citizens, 
Roman citizens, uh, they were fearful and they just tried to dismiss them out of the city quietly. But here's what had happened. Uh, certainly the flag of the gospel had been raised on a new continent. And can I, can I just say to you in passing as our introduction, I know this is a lot of history, but can I just tell you that, that really that's what pleases God as far as how a church should start and how a church should grow? I know a lot of you have come here because you've moved here and you're already followers of Jesus. You were looking for a church. I know there can be problems and issues in other churches and people can come to a church. But for the most part, we have a desire to grow here at Northwest, for this ministry to thrive and grow because people come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. That's exactly what happened in Philippi. There would have been no church. It wasn't like there's you know, the first church of Philippi and the second church of Philippi and the community church of Philippi and all of those churches. And they said, let's start a new club. And so they started a new club and some people came and they kind of all switched around. No, nobody knew Jesus till Lydia and her family come to Christ and the jailer and his family comes to Christ and all of a sudden the gospel takes off. And so this church, when we come to the book of Philippians, the church at Philippi is about 11 years old and Paul hasn't been there in about four years He's been planting other churches. But the people at Philippi have heard that Paul is in prison, and indeed he is in prison. We know he's writing this letter as he's in prison in Rome. And they're concerned about him. Uh, he's in a, a filthy prison in Rome, facing the very real possibility of exec execution for his faith. And so they decide that they're going to take up an offering and they're going to send one of their own to go to Rome to try to find Paul, to give him this food, to give him this offering, to encourage him to find out how he's doing. And so they send a man by the name of Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus on his journey, uh, the text tells us, in fact, in Philippians 2 and verse 27, that Epaphroditus got so sick that he almost died. But finally he founds, finds Paul. He delivers uh, the words of encouragement from the church at Philippi. He gives them the gifts. You know, I can only imagine, you know. I mean, if I'm ever in prison, I just got some suggestions of what I'd kind of like you to bring me. Um, there's some people that really can make some great biscuits, you know, and uh, some country ham and some sausage. That, that's what I would like. If, so if I'm ever there, right, just, just think that's what I want. I don't really know what they brought him as far as gifts. Money probably wasn't um, really that important to him. But Paul then sits down and he goes, man, I'm going to pen a letter to these people. I want to just thank them for who they are and for what they've meant to me in my life. That's important for you to understand also. And we're about ready to go on to word two, by the way. It's important for you to understand that most of the epistles were written to churches either to confront or correct doctrinal error. Let me give you an example. First and second Corinthians, right? People were just unholy. I mean, they were just doing bad, bad stuff. And so Paul sits down and he writes them and goes, man, if you're really followers of Jesus, you got to stop this. You can't be doing this. And, and, and marriage is this. And you got to be faithful. And you got to... Colossians, Paul writes to the Colossians to uh, confront Gnosticism. But Philippians is written to thank and encourage the believers in Philippi. And as I thought about this this week, I thought, you know, if... if, uh, if, if Paul or anybody was writing a letter to the church at Panther Creek, what would it be? Would he be just simply writing to encourage us and say, keep on going, keep on doing what you're doing? 
Or would he write us to confront some error in our midst? I think that's healthy to consider. All right, let's get on to word two. And, no, we're not going to do that. No, we're going we're gonna to now take a little bit more, uh, a, a little bit more to time. But that gives you a background, all right? So now you know the context under which Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians. Verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. I think it's interesting here that he doesn't say, Paul, the apostle. Now, you dudes don't know it yet, but I'm going to write most of the New Testament. And I want you to know who I am, all right? Uh, we don't have time to park here very long, but can I just say to you that... Uh, if, if, if you are part of our family here at Northwest, you can have an expectation. In fact, you should have an expectation of the leadership here at Northwest to serve, to be servants. God never intended for us to lord over you. And can I just say this? If you're visiting with us, if you attend another church here in the area or another place far away, that if you're in a church where there are men or women or a combination thereof that are lording over you, you are in the wrong place. You should leave there. God intended for those that lead the church to be servants of the church. And Paul gets that. And he says, Paul and Timothy, me, Paul, with my young protege, Timothy, we're just servants of Jesus Christ. And we greet you. And then he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. I like how Paul mentions saints. I know some of you are from a Catholic background, and I've always been intrigued by this thing about somebody achieving sainthood, right? One thing I've noticed about achieving sainthood in the Catholic Church is you have to die. Like, I'm not thinking that's so cool, right? I mean, what's the point, right? I mean, after you're dead, I mean, I want to be St. Brian now. So what you just call me, you know, there's St. Brian right there. Right? Here's the cool thing. When we're followers of Jesus, I love it that the Apostle Paul addresses us, uh, addresses these people at Philippi, and he would us as well. To those of us that have placed our trust in Christ alone as Savior, he says, we're saints. You know, you can use that title, Saint, Saint Bruce, Saint Bruce, you can use that. Put that on your business card. I mean, Saint Bruce, Saint John, you know, Saint Debbie. Paul greets them as saints, and then he mentions overseers. And by the word, by the way, that word uh, is used interchangeably with pastor, with elder. And I think it's very interesting there that not only is he addressing the elders, the pastors, but he's also saying deacons. Some of you have said at times uh, here at Northwest, why do we have uh, deacons and elders? Well, we have deacons and elders because in the early church, uh, there were two offices. It was deacons and elders, right? Deacons, deacon, and elders, eld, right? And that's why we have them. And here's what happens here at Northwest. We try to be as biblical as possible in, in our church leadership and our structure, now, our elders give spiritual oversight and direction and leadership to our ministry, right? We call out from our body men who will lead in that way. And then there's another office in the early church. We see it in the book of Acts, and then we see Paul addressing those two groups uh, here. Those are deacons. They meet the physical needs of the body, and we have a group of men and women who serve here at Northwest, and that's what they do. Verse 2 says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great way to begin his, his letter by reminding them of this great word grace. That's the word that refers to the unmerited favor from God that we uh, receive through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. And, and remember that that grace is not shown to us because we merit that, because we deserve that. There's nothing good in us. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, 
we never really understand the grace of God until we realize that what he did for us was not based on anything that we deserved. In fact, uh, he gave it to us in spite of what we deserve. And when we experience God's grace, he says, grace to you, and then what? What happens? Peace. When we experience God's grace, we should find peace. If you're here this morning and you have a relationship with Jesus, you should have peace with God. And then Paul goes on in verse 3 to say, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. It's important to know, and you're going to see this throughout the text, that Paul had an incredible relationship with this church. I think it's fair to say that they were probably his favorites. <laughs> of all the places that he'd been on his journeys, of all the people that he had met, the significant relationships that he had had, the people at Philippi were his favorites. And he says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. I thought about that this week, just about the people of Northwest. I talked to Jerry and Matt about this, and there's so many people that are here uh, at Northwest uh, that we would say that about. Every time we remember you, every time we think about you, we're thankful. Maybe good uh, for you to ask yourself this question. Um, it's one thing to be on this side and to be on the other side. As somebody who is a follower of Jesus and attends a church and is somebody who, who I and the other leaders here at Northwest have spiritual responsibility for your soul, what would we say about you? Would we thank God when we remember you? Or would he say, please, God, do something with that? Well, just, I'm just asking, right? I don't want to make it too uncomfortable in the introduction here, but I'm just asking. Paul said, every time I remember this group of people, of all the places that I've been, 11 years later, I thank God for you. This was an incredibly special group of people. Matt was just sharing with me this morning uh, about he and Dana and how they have felt about how this group of people have ministered uh, to them and to their uh, sweet family uh, during the home going of Dana's mom. It causes uh, people that, that, that serve you in the way in which we do just to go, we thank God every time we remember you and how you've shown love toward us. Verse 4 says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. <laughs> now I read that as a pastor and I go, man, that's kind of a, kind of a tall order there. <laughs> Always in every prayer of mine for you all, I pray. I'm thinking, I pray for a lot of you. I pray often for a lot of you. But he says, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with what? With joy. Now, I ask myself this question, and you should too. I'm going to assume that you just did. Why is he happy? Right? You did just ask that question. In fact, all together, just say it. Why is he happy? That was good. That was very lame. <laughs> About like we haven't been in church since December 18th. That was pathetic, right? We'll try it again. Why is he happy? I'm glad you asked that question. Because he knew, he knew something. You say, what did he know? Well, he knew that he had an 18-month sentence and that there's this small island just south of Rome out in the Mediterranean. And man, it's a resort island. And he knew that after 18 months, they had given him a gift certificate that said, hey, when you get out, we want you to fly down there to the island of Malta. There's this resort there. We've prepaid everything. It's going to be great. You're going, dude, like, is that in the message or what? Because I've never seen 
I've never seen that in the ESV or the NASB. No, he's not happy because of that. Think about it. Based on our common definition of happiness, he shouldn't be happy. He's sitting in a Roman prison awaiting execution. The scholars will tell us he has, he has no family, he has no wife, he has no kids. He's been beaten for the cause of the gospel countless times. Before he came to know Jesus, he had a very prominent position of authority. And now look at him. Why does he say he has joy? The words used no less than 16 times in these 104 verses. I want to use this as a working definition of joy over our next several weeks together as we study the book of Philippians. Here it is. Joy is the supernatural satisfaction in the person, purposes, and people of Jesus. All right? If you've got a pen and a piece of paper, you should write that down. If you're really smart, you can just memorize it here real quickly. But joy is the supernatural satisfaction in the person, purposes, and people of Jesus. That's why Paul had a life that was marked by joy. Joy isn't so much an emotion as it is a lifestyle. Do you find yourself, your, your joy kind of going just like this? I mean, literally, I can be happy, and I, I hate that I'm like this, but I'll just be transparent and tell you that I am like this. I can be happy, and then something can happen. I can see something. I can feel something, and all of a sudden, I'm pretty sad, right? And then all of a sudden, I can see something else, and I'm going, oh, I'm happy again, Right? And then I go, well, I'm sad again. Anybody else like that? All right, great. I'm the only, I'll, I'll get counseling. I'll be okay. I mean, I'd be fine. But that's because for me sometimes, joy is an emotion. What Paul is saying and what we're going to see in these next weeks together as we study this book whose theme is joy, we're going to see that, that joy is not so much an emotion as it is a lifestyle. It's a choice that we make based on knowing the person of Christ, understanding the purposes that he has for us, and then being in relationship with the people of Christ. And so in verse 5, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now we're landing the plane, all right? We're circling the airport. We're getting ready to come down. But the word that's translated here in the ESV, partnership, in the, NA, in the NASB, I believe it's participation. If you've been here at Northwest, you've heard us talk about this word. It's an incredible word. I love this word in the Greek language. It's the word koinonia. And koinonia just simply means this. It means the sharing of life together. Now, this same word or its derivatives appear in uh, verse 7, chapter 2, and verse 1, chapter 3 and verse 10, chapter 4 and verses 14. We've talked about the word before. It's found in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when talking about the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the koinonia, the sharing of life together to the breaking of bread, that's communion, and to the prayers. Now, we think we know what fellowship is, but I'm not sure many of us really know what fellowship is, right? Fellowship isn't just simply any human interaction that we have or even just any interaction that Christians have or when we do something, work together. That's not fellowship. I think we've used this word casually for so many years that it's lost its true biblical meaning for most of us. Some of you, like me, uh, you grew up in a church where you had a, had a fellowship hall. How many of you, you had a fellowship hall? All right, just admit it. All right, it's good. It's, therape it's therapeutic for you to just admit this, right? And here, here, here's what I knew. I knew this to be the place for our church in Omaha 
um, it was in the basement of the church, right? It smelled just like what you'd expect a basement to smell like. We had block walls, you know, and it smelled like a church basement. And I knew the fellowship hall to be the place where we went down there for fellowship, and we always had stale sugar cookies and red punch, right? That's what we had. And I always wondered this. In fact, I, I'm 50 years old. I still wonder why it always had to be red punch. I, it, but it was always red. We never had lemonade. That wasn't baptistic for sure. We had, we had stale sugar cookies and red punch, and we, we fellowshiped. And so for most of us, that's your understanding of fellowship. You know, to put it in modern-day vernacular, we're going to go over here, and a bunch of us guys, we're going to get some wings. We're going to have some fellowship. You're going to have some good food, but you are not, in the biblical sense, going to have fellowship. Paul is not connected with these people because they ate a lot together or because they, 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 they talked about Clemson beating Alabama. Awesome. They, they, he's, not, he's not connected with them on that level. None of that's bad. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad that we, we enjoy life together uh, at Northwest. So many of you like that. that. That's not bad. That's all good. But fellowship only happens when we participate and have partnership in the common cause of the gospel. That's the only way it can happen. And can I suggest to you this morning that the reason why some of you are not really experiencing true satisfaction, true joy in your life is because you are not truly in fellowship with a group of people. You're not in partnership. You're not uh, participating in the cause of the gospel. The real joy comes when we participate in the common cause of the gospel. And you will never grow. You will never thrive. You will never understand true joy until you understand fellowship in that sense. That's the truth. Now, the beginning of a new year, it is a great opportunity for some of you to get off the stands and, and, and get onto the field again. Some of you have been on the field before. Man, you were involved, you were, and you, you know what it's like. Now, I just got back two months ago with a group of people from Kenya, and I'm telling you, we had koinonia. You say, well, how do you know? I wasn't based on our circumstances, trust me. Two and a half hours down a mountain on a road that a mule shouldn't even be on, right? And we're in vehicles. Two and a half hours back up it, eight hours from Nairobi to the city, to the little town where we would be based. Then two and a half hours down, and it's lunchtime, and there's no, there's no chicken. There's no Chick-fil-A, right? I mean, that can produce joy. That's one of my high points right there. There's no lost trace. I mean, you're like down here. But yet we're still joyful. We're still excited. Why? Because we have partnered together with you for the sake, for the cause of the gospel. And that produced incredible joy. And you can experience that too. But you have to be participating. You have to be in partnership with other people, not just over some wings, not just over a piece of overrated cheesecake someplace. You got to be in partnership with the gospel. One commentary that I read uh, last week said this. I love this. I'm going to close with this. He said, no punch and cookies here. This is the fellowship of brothers and sisters bound together in a great cause. And that cause is the gospel. And he, he said this. And this is so true as we begin our study in the book of Philippians. And you're going to have to wrestle with this if you want Philippians to be relevant to you and you want it to make sense and you want to embrace what Jerry and I are going to talk about over the next several weeks. You'll not understand this letter 
if you don't understand koinonia, true partnership, true participation in the cause of the gospel. Fellowship goes beyond friendship. Fellowship occurs among friends committed to a common cause or goal and flourishes through their common pursuit of it. That's why Paul said, every time I think about you people, I get excited. I'm filled with joy. I thank my God every time. Remember the times, you know, we had that little children's club, you know, behind the river there where Lydia, where you came to know Christ and, and other people came to Christ. And then we, you know, remember that? Every time I think about that, I just get excited. You go, why are you excited? You're in jail. You're bleeding. You've been beaten. Because every time I think about that partnership, that sweet koinonia makes me happy. Because I realize that joy is based on the supernatural understanding of the person of Christ, the purposes of Christ, and the people of Christ.